This is a Federal News Network podcast. The so-called insider threat remains a potent one for cybersecurity practitioners. But old-fashioned outside hackers have been raising their capabilities. Now they're the biggest threat to governments at all levels. And those are some of the findings of the latest annual cybersecurity survey done by software vendor SolarWinds. Here with the highlights, SolarWinds Chief Information Security Officer, Tim Brown. Mr. Brown, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And this is a survey, so tell us who you spoke with and the types of people and some questions you asked them. So we spoke to about 400 IT operations and security people, about 200 in the federal space, 100 state and local, and 100 educators. So a good cross-section of folks, federal, state, and local. All right. And so the top-line finding, at least one that came out at me, was the idea of hackers as opposed to, say, fishers or people doing stupid things internally has risen in terms of their threat capabilities? Yeah, and actually just the awareness and what people are concerned about. You know, we've always seen more concern, especially in the federal government, for the insider, right? And the insider threat has been higher than the general hacking population. This year, we saw a shift to the nation state as one of the largest threats that people believe that they face. Yeah, that's an interesting shift from saying, hey, not the general hacker community, not the insider, but the nation state actor. And so what are the indicators of threat for that? And are people generally up to speed on having those indicators feeding into them reliably so they know what's going on? Yeah, it's hard. Right. When you face a nation state attack, that nation state attacker is extremely quiet. They're extremely thoughtful in what they're doing. They're trying to do reconnaissance on the back end. They're trying to be quiet and stealthy in their approach. You know, when you look at our incident, which is now attributed to the Russian SVR, when you look at that, they came in for a specific purpose. They were on a specific mission. They were like the science fiction movie theater actor that's on a mission that said, I'm going to come in, do one thing, and then I'm going to get out. I'm not going to make noise. I'm not going to be loud. I'm not going to be easy to find. And I'm going to perform everything on a mission level operation. What we're seeing now, though, is that the ransomware vendors are doing those types of same things. They're getting more sophisticated in their attack models. So they are using the techniques of people who want information and data for strategic purposes and applying those techniques for ransomware. Yeah, absolutely. Because they know that if you look at the ransomware payouts that have happened over the year, you know, they're getting larger and larger and larger. So if you're going to get a payout of $5 million, is it okay to invest 500000 right? You don't just get it for free. So, you know, they can create a mission plan. They can be prescriptive. They can be long-term, quiet, stealthy, and make that investment because the payout on the other end is so great. And SolarWinds has a pretty big footprint in the federal government. Do you get the sense that even though the federal government has not had a successful ransomware attack that we know about, there have been some at the state and local levels, and they have paid the entities to get their data back and so forth? Do you sense that the government has a plan of action should a ransomware attack be successful and data is taken or somehow encrypted, that they know what they would do, how they would respond? I think there are plans in different areas and different segments have the correct plans for saying, hey, what would I do? And the realization that, hey, this can happen. If you look at the evolution, right, ransomware is just simply a better business model for our threat actors. They don't need to steal data and sell it to someone. They simply need to get access, 
encrypt the data, they take out a middleman, and then they get paid. So don't think of ransomware as something that is brand new. You still have to get in. You still have to take action. But you've taken a middleman out from the selling perspective. So that's why it's so popular of an attack model. You know, you get paid quickly, you get paid directly, you, you don't have middlemen in the way. But again, the stealthy tactics of the nation state are starting to get applied by that type of threat actor. We're speaking with Tim Brown. He's chief information security officer at Solar Winds. And relative to state and local government, the federal government seems to be more capable at cyber. But that's an issue because of the interaction sometimes between federal and state systems. It's actually quite a widespread phenomenon. Yeah. So one of the things the survey showed as well is just the lack of people, right? The lack of, in some cases, it's not funding for people, but it's funding for finding the right people, bringing the right people in. You know, private sector still usually pays more than, you know, public sector. So, you know, just the talent and the people that are necessary and the breadth. With cyber becoming such big business, every commercial operation is looking for cyber people as well. So there's a lot of competition for the right people and the right architecture and design of security systems and systems in general. Now, phishing has been a popular vector for implanting bad software, but that is kind of visible and kind of exciting when it happens. Do hackers with malintent still use the old-fashioned techniques of trying to code their way in Stealthily, I think you implied that. Yeah, absolutely. The old school techniques still are absolutely applied to, you know, even sophisticated attacks. You know, how do you understand what an environment looks like? You know, you get in, you do reconnaissance on an environment, you get access to the top level, you get access to email and other things. Then you start learning. Phishing is always a good entry point. Social engineering is still an entry point. So there's a lot of kind of classic entry points that are utilized by even the more sophisticated folks. And has remote work made this worse, this threat, simply because people that are not in the standard office setting may be using different networks to connect to the Internet that are varying degrees of security? Yeah. So one of the things the survey showed was a couple of things that were interesting, right? So, you know, what were the three top technical implementations that folks were looking for? One was remote collaboration. The other one was remote control working, how to be able to remote into system. And the third was troubleshooting. And interesting on the third one being troubleshooting, you know, why troubleshooting? If we look at environments, they have greatly increased in complexity. So we've got people working from home everywhere. So we have that component. Then we have networks that have gone hybrid. We have systems that are everywhere. They're in the cloud, they're on-premise, they're in what we used to call our network, right? They're everywhere. And then we have the remote workers on the outside. So the contained model of saying, hey, I've got this thing that it's a big thing in the middle that I can protect is just, you know, changed incredibly in the last two years. So That's our challenge is how do we now not protect just the remote work, but how do we protect the hybrid IT environments that are just, you know, everywhere in place. And looking at the same environment from a different angle, the federal government has a large program with many manifestations to deal with the supply chain security threat. And of course, SolarWinds had that issue about a year and a half ago. What's the status there? Are agencies getting better at understanding that vector? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the questions we had was how much awareness of the executive order do folks have? And a lot of good awareness there, a lot of good hope there. 
So I think the awareness of supply chain is there. I think solutions for supply chain are difficult, right? Just think about something like, you know, Microsoft Windows, how many third-party components it has inside of it. And then think of how many third-party components those third-party components have. We just have a big, 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 big supply chain where things like Log4J came out, you know, December again and affected so many. It's like, how many are utilizing it? Where is it being utilized? What's going on? How does this affect my other systems and my applications that I'm in use? So it's a good example of a component that's common, that's utilized, that you know had a major vulnerability and utilized. So we're still working on the kind of the procedures around how we get it all right and how we both understand what we have and then take actions when something like this occurs. So I think the good news on supply chain is that it is understood. People are thinking and people are trying to come up with solutions that will be appropriate and be practical and work. Yeah, that thinking component, I guess, is the most important one, huh? It is. It is. Realization that, they, hey, this is a problem. Realization that, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here, maybe. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what components I have. So thinking about it is kind of stage one. So as long as we get awareness, great. Tim Brown is Chief Information Security Officer at SolarWinds. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for your time. We'll post this interview along with a link to their survey at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.